I remember my father coming home very often from the synagogue and the evening services, and he said that more Jews came across the border. They had smuggled. I was uh, maybe 11, 12 years old, but I remember them telling horrendous stories about uh, some of the things that the Polish people had gone through and that how they had walked for days and nights and crossed the border. So uh, there were people who had put them up and sheltered them. You know, aside from the fact that it was very hard to believe, I think the people kept thinking that it would only, it'll go away. It, it happened there, but it'll, it will certainly not come to us. Listening to Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. Esther Schwartzman was born Ella Fried on January 10, 1929, in the city of Mukachevo, Czechoslovakia. When Esther was nine, the city became part of Hungary and was then known as Munkacs. Esther was the third of five children and grew up in a religious family surrounded by grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins. Her father was a businessman who dealt in office and school supplies, textiles, and dry goods. Her mother was a housewife. Esther first attended public schools. But then, with anti-Semitism on the rise, her parents enrolled her in a private Jewish school for girls. Hungarian rule brought with it increasing restrictions for Jews. But Esther's life wasn't truly upended until early 1944, when the Nazis occupied Hungary and herded the Jews of Munkacs into a ghetto before deporting them to Auschwitz. In all, more than 27,000 Jews from Munkach and surrounding villages were shipped in cattle cars to almost certain death. It's now 46 years later, and Esther is sharing her story with interviewer Yashael Perry at the offices of the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Esther is wearing a lavender silk blouse buttoned at the neck and a string of pearls. Her short, wavy, dark blonde hair is combed back from her forehead. From the tears in her eyes and the emotion in her voice, it's clear that the past is very much present. In a few days, they loaded us up on uh, the freight cars, on cattle cars, and transported us to Auschwitz. We finally got to Auschwitz. There came the separation, where they separated us all. They had all the younger women in one area. But uh, for a while I was walking, I, I saw my mother with uh, the two younger children, so I went with her. But uh, after a little while, uh, along came a German officer. He said, I should go buck fish. He said, you go this way, you go this way. And all of a sudden, I was all alone. Um, they, um, told us to go towards a certain area where um, we entered into a room. And there were hundreds of women, young women. They had a strip completely. 
when they shaved our heads. I didn't know what happened to anybody else from my family. I didn't see anyone for a while, and later I saw my two older sisters, and we uh, stared at each other, standing there totally in total undress and with our hair shaved. But uh, at least we found each other. Uh, they consequently gave us dresses. Each one got a different dress. They were not the prisoner's dresses yet, just a dress they selected and threw it at us. Um, then we were lined up, and they painted this big cross on our backs from top to bottom and across our backs, I suppose, so we couldn't run away, so we could be easily identified. And uh, that is all that we had to our names, address. One day, somebody came in with a message that my father is in um, is outside somewhere beyond the fence, and he wanted to see us. And we went to the fence to see him. You couldn't go too close to the fence because they were electric, electrified the wire fence. But we talked to him, and he said, if they ever ask for volunteers to go to work, he said, you'll be the first ones to volunteer. He said, I don't care what work, whatever they ask for, you can do. Uh, a few weeks later, uh, they uh, did ship us out uh, to another area. They transported us to Bidgosh, and there was a camp in Brana. We were put in these barracks, and they gave us uh, some decent clothing for the first time. They gave us a towel, actually, and we each had our own bunk bed. Eventually, they took us to a munitions factory to work, which is where we worked for several months. We filled bombs with uh, gas for 12 hours at a time. We worked in these munitions factories and tried in our own small ways to sabotage whatever we thought we could do by throwing some debris or paper or whatever we thought, you know, in the, inside the grenades or inside the bombs that we were filling. We thought maybe we could do some harm. So in January 45, what happened? In January 1945, we came back from the night shift in the morning, and it seemed like uh, the talk was going on that they're evacuating the camp. They just lined us up, the entire camp, and uh, they started us out on a march that morning. And pretty soon we joined up with other camps, and uh, as we went on, there were thousands and thousands of prisoners marching on, on this uh, road. It was snowing, and the Germans were coming by our side and behind us in the trucks with guns, and they just kept going and yelling for us to keep going and to keep marching. And we marched for days and days, and my older sister said she can't march anymore. And a couple of times she said she's going to stop. She's not going on, and there were a lot of people who did, and they shot them on the road. She said, I don't care if they shoot me, I'm not going anymore. And at that point, she sat down on the side of the road and uh, my other sister and myself, we stayed with her. Uh, 
I guess the Germans were such, in such a hurry at the time already that they let us stay. After uh, sitting there for a while and the columns passed by and everybody was gone and we realized that they allowed us to stay without shooting us, we picked ourselves up and started walking in the snow. And there were some farmers who lived uh, in the vicinity and uh, we were afraid to approach them. We had no idea whether they were Germans or whether they would take kindly to us. So we waited and when nightfall came, we went into the cellar. There was an open cellar door. There were uh, several of us together, not just my two sisters. Others came too with us and hid in this dark cellar. And fortunately, that farmer was boiling some potatoes for his pigs. And uh, we took him out from the boiling water, and we were so hungry, they were muddy. We took him out, and we peeled them, and we ate them. Early in the morning, the farmer came in, and he, uh, he put his uh, container in to pull out the potatoes to feed his hogs. And he started to swear because there were so few. He couldn't see us because it was a very dark, big cellar, and we were hidden when we heard him come. He was swearing up and down in German, which we understood, of course. But uh, we didn't make a sound, and he disappeared. And during that night was the first time we heard a lot of shooting going on. So we realized what was happening, that the Russians were advancing and the Germans were retreating. So when we heard the Russian being spoken, we finally emerged from the cellar. And we were able to converse with the Russians, and we asked who they were, and they were Russian soldiers and were freeing Poland. And so we felt we were freed. The Germans, when they knew that the Russians were advancing, they obviously uh, ran away. So there were a lot of abandoned farmhouses. We went to the nearest farmhouse, and we occupied it. Uh, we um, stayed there for a while and found some clothing, some old clothing that they had left behind, which was very, very helpful because we had torn clothing, very little left, and uh, it was cold. So I remember finding underwear, men's, um, what do they call these, union suits, warm underwear, and I put on several layers, as did a lot of other people which was helpful in our travels because it took us weeks before we got home. We got dressed one day and we decided that uh, the 17 of us girls who stayed together, we would start out ahead home. And uh, we had to be very careful because the war was still going on and we heard all sorts of stories from others about the Russians shooting some of the prisoners and some of them taken along, especially the girls. And um, as we got to a railroad, we kept inquiring, is there one going towards uh, Warsaw? They said uh, in a day there would be a freight train coming through with coal. And that is the way we traveled. We were riding right on top of the coals or inside cattle cars or whatever way, as long as they allowed us to go. We got all the way to Warsaw, only to find that Warsaw was a ghost city because everything was completely bombed. There was not one building that was standing in one piece. It was completely bombed, devastated. And there was no Jewish community. We had hoped to get some help 
from a Jewish community, if there would be one. And uh, they told us to go to Praga, Polska Praga, they said, which was about seven kilometers from there. Eventually we made it to Praga, and there was a Jewish community that uh, tried to help us in a little way, but I guess the war was still on, and they had very little. And uh, we stayed there for a few days, and uh, each day the, on the streets they were um, people selling bread already. And just to see the bread was such a, was such a relief, just, just to know that we could survive. If, if there's bread available, somehow we were going to get it, but we had no money. So what we did is barter with our clothing. And every day they asked me to take off another layer of my underwear so we could sell it in order to buy a, a loaf of bread. And that's, that was the most wonderful thing. We had bread. That was all we had, but it was wonderful. A lot of people did not want to go home. But those of us in our group, we decided we would go back to Munkach. We had no idea what we would find there, but we knew we had to get back. And after a lot of traveling, it was already beginning of spring, it was March, the end of March, and uh, you could see the beautiful green scenery already. We were sitting on the freight trains with our legs dangling out, rolling along the hills of the Carpathian Mountains, and eventually arrived back to Munkach. I went to see what happened to our home. which was completely empty of everything. They had taken off the windows, the doors, the kitchen sink, and they ripped open the floorboards to see whether we had hidden any jewelry. And we could see the grass growing already through. I'll never forget that. The grass was growing in the kitchen, under the kitchen floor already. And uh, as we were walking along on the street, we met some, somebody he saw we were Jewish women who had uh, come back. He asked our names. And this Jewish man said that my uncle survived. Who was my father's younger brother. So we went over to his place and of course he was overjoyed to see us. And uh, he took us in. He also uh, was a survivor. <laughs> but his young wife and two children were killed. So he was in pretty bad shape himself. Uh, he told us that we have another uncle who had uh, survived and lives in another area. The city was uh, devoid of Jews, except for a few that came back, straggled back after the war. And I think during that summer, maybe, well, there might have been about 100 Jews who came back. And this was a city where there were 16,000 Jews. And there were some girls and some men who survived, no children, and no older people, of course. These were all just young people. During that summer we found out that this part of Hungary was going to become uh, 
Ukraine. The Russians were going to take it over and it will belong to the Ukraine. And when we heard that, we realized that unless we get out now, we will not be able to get out. I can't remember exactly how and when, but I know eventually we all wound up in the same city, which was called Homutov, uh, I think north of Prague, which is where we moved to. And uh, my mother had four sisters in the United States that had been living here for some time. My sister uh, remembered one of the addresses of one of the aunts, so she wrote a letter to my aunt telling her that we survived and uh, what happened to the rest of the family. It so happened that this aunt had moved away from that area, and the mailman who used to deliver the mail to her knew that they no longer lived there, but sensing the importance of a letter from Europe, because he used to for years deliver their mail, and this was right after the war, he felt that this must be important. So after he got through work with his own route, he took that letter and delivered it to them. And that's the only reason we were able to establish contact with our family in the United States at that time. So in the spring of 1945, excuse me, 46, we went and smuggled through the border. We walked, we paid someone, and we walked through the entire night. And uh, somebody took us from there to a DP camp. During that time in Germany, in the DP camps, um, conditions were such that while we lived in barracks, we knew we were free. We knew that the Americans were there. They took us to Bremen. We stayed in Bremen there at, in some camp waiting for a ship to come in. When the high holidays arrived, they had sent a chaplain, a Jewish uh, rabbi, who performed services for us. And I remember him telling us When we get to America, don't tell your story. He said, don't tell anyone what happened, because no one will believe you. But of course, when we got to the United States, uh, our family did want to know what happened. And, uh, we described briefly. Uh, my father was killed in Buchenwald. We found out from a friend later that he was together with him in Buchenwald, and during a bombing raid, he was killed. I remember when we arrived to the United States, just seeing the Statue of Liberty was wonderful. We arrived also in the middle of the night, and we looked out, and we saw all those bright lights. And uh, the following morning, they uh, started to let us get off the ship. And our relatives waited for us all day long 
there to take us back with them. But it, there were about uh, 1,200 people on that ship, so it took like the better part of the day until they uh, disembarked us all. And uh, one cousin finally remained. The rest of them had gone back because the Sabbath was coming, and I guess they had to go home. And she took us back uh, to another aunt's house where we would be staying. And to this day, I remember all the windows, uh, the store windows, with all the glitter, because it was December 20th when we arrived. And we saw the Christmas trees, and I remember all the lights and the windows laden with all these things. And it was, you know, you, like you get out of a bad dream and you come into fantasy land. That's what it felt like. Getting used to the good life in America was not hard. Uh, to be sure, we had our struggles and our ups and downs uh, when we first arrived, as all newcomers did. But uh, we were helped. And we had wonderful family here who was very anxious to help us. And I met and uh, married a wonderful man. And we are the parents of uh, five children and eight wonderful and beautiful grandchildren. I would like to ask you a question. Uh, raising five children, having grandchildren, mm -hmm. uh, during the raising of the children, being a survivor yourself, your husband a survivor too, in his way, did you try during the years in some way to tell them, or did they ask questions about your of past? Of course, of course they did. Um, let me put it this way. We told them very little in the beginning. It was very hard. I couldn't bring myself in the beginning to tell them much, but as they got older and they realized they have no grandparents, periodically I would tell them bits and pieces, but never all at once too much. But uh, so as years went on, I thought it would be easier to talk about, but obviously it's not any easier today after uh, all these years than it was uh, years ago, maybe somewhat. But, you know, you bury the past, and, but all you have to do is press the right button and it's there again. Esther Schwartzman died at the age of 91 on July 26, 2020. She had five children, 13 grandchildren, and 39 great-grandchildren in the United States and Israel. Her life as a Rebetzin, the wife of Orthodox Rabbi Solomon Schwartzman, had taken her from New York, Pennsylvania, and Washington State to Vermont, Massachusetts, back to Pennsylvania, and finally in retirement to New Haven, Connecticut. Esther's eldest daughter, Shelley Bowman, said that her mother was devoted to her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. She kept a list of every birthday and anniversary and had cards and gifts prepared in advance so they would always arrive on time. She never missed a wedding or bar mitzvah, no matter how far she had to travel. 
In the last years of her life, Esther volunteered at a local public elementary school with the Jewish Coalition for Literacy, helping young students learn to read. Shelley recalled that her mother took enormous pride in her independence and well into her 80s continued to travel to Israel every year to be with family for Passover. She also traveled back to her home city of Munkach three times at the urging of her children and grandchildren who traveled with her. To learn more about Esther Schwartzman, please visit our companion website at thosewhowerethere.org. It includes episode notes, a full transcript, and archival photographs. That's where you can also find our previous episodes, as well as background information on the Fortunoff Video Archive and the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at the Yale University Library's Manuscripts and Archives Department in New Haven, Connecticut. This second season is a co-production with the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust, New York's contribution to the global responsibility to never forget. The museum is committed to the crucial mission of educating diverse visitors about Jewish life before, during, and after the Holocaust. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, Eric Marcus, the Fortunoff Archives Director Stephen Naren, and Trevor Walsh, Collections Project Manager at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Thank you to audio engineer John Gordon. Thanks as well to Christy Bailey Tomachek, Joanna Arruda, Noah Guto Ellis, and Inga Detaya for their assistance. And thank you to Sam Cassow for historical oversight, and to photo editor Michael Green, genealogist Michael Leclerc, and our social media team, including Christiana Peña, Nick Porter, and Sarah Barber. Leova Gerbin composed our theme music. Thank you as well to Shelley Bullman and her sisters and brothers for providing family photographs and background information about their mother. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening. Music